Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Addiction is not a moral issue. It's a public health issue. And we need to look at it through a health lens, not a moral lens. No child dreams of becoming a drug addict one day. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we get started with today's interview, I have a challenge for you. If you listen to the episode and you love what you hear, I hope you will consider writing us a review. It goes a long way in helping other people discover the podcast and the stories we bring you each week. Aaron began abusing prescription pills at the age of eight and by 13 was using heroin. She hid in shame behind what I like to call a white picket armor. She was a wonderful student, athlete, equestrian, but in her hidden life, she was a teen drug addict, numbing and self-medicating to cope with anxiety, depression, and panic attacks. Aaron walks us through an incredible detail the journey of her 15 years of addiction. She also shares how she has remained clean and sober for nearly two decades. We also talk about how addiction is not in fact a moral failing, a sign of a bad or flawed person, and is so often deeply rooted in mental illness. She talks a lot about shame, stigma, and how looking at people as human beings suffering versus a hopeless addict makes all the difference in the world. Here's today's interview with Aaron Carr. Welcome to All the Wiser, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I am as well. I always like to have our guests introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself? I am a writer and an advice columnist. I've been an advice columnist for 11 years. And I write about things like addiction and recovery, mental health, parenting, sex, relationships, all the sort of things that make us human. Well, thank you for that beautiful introduction. I'm curious about growing up. What was the backdrop of your childhood? I grew up in Los Angeles, in a suburb of Los Angeles, just about 10 minutes outside of LA proper. And, you know, grew up in an upper middle class family. My parents divorced when I was eight, but outside of that, I had everything I needed. I went to prep school. I horseback rode. I was a volleyball player, cheerleader. I had a lot of friends, good grades, but I also had a drug problem. (laughs) And we are going to talk about that today a lot. And then the road of recovery that brings us to this conversation. I know, as you said, eight was the time when your parents got divorced. And it was also a pivotal defining moment in the beginning, essentially, of your relationship with drugs and abusing drugs. Can you tell me that story? Sure. So at around seven, eight years old, I started having panic attacks. I didn't know that that's what they were. I didn't have that sort of language for it. But I would get a panicky feeling, sweaty would feel like I wanted to just cut myself out of my skin. I was having one of these moments at home on a Saturday. My mom was on the phone. I could kind of hear her down the hallway. And I started feeling that heat under my skin where I just felt like I wanted to jump out of my skin. I wasn't entirely cognizant of why at that time. 
And having those feelings and like feeling like I wanted to jump out the window or jump out of my own skin made me feel scared and also made me feel like it was something I needed to hide from other people, that it made me different than other people, that other people wouldn't understand that feeling. And I felt a desperation to to squash that. I went into the bathroom that day and I'm not even sure what I was looking for, but when I opened the medicine cabinet, I saw a pill bottle on the shelf that had my grandmother's name on it. It was an expired bottle of Darvacet. At the time, I had no idea what Darvacet was. It's a painkiller. It had been there for some time. I believe my grandmother had given it to my mom for migraines, but my mom never really took it. So it had just been sitting there. What attracted me to the bottle was that there was a little label on it with a man with little bubbles around his head and it said, may cause drowsiness. And that sounded good to me. I wanted drowsiness. I wanted sleepiness. I wanted to feel not here, not present. So I took one and I went back to my room and I lay down on my bed and started reading. And after some time, I started to feel a disconnect and a fuzziness and what felt like little bubbles in my head, just like the picture I had seen on the bottle. It provided me with enough distance from my own feelings and enough distance from the thoughts in my head that I couldn't control that I immediately felt like this is relief for me. This is, this is an answer. So from that point forward, when I was at friends' houses, I would look through their parents' medicine cabinets, or if I was at a relative's house, I would look through their medicine cabinets. And if I saw something with a warning label that said may cause drowsiness, I would pilfer a couple of pills and save them for later. And, you know, quite stupidly, never knew what they were, would just take them if they said they caused drowsiness. And I'd save them for when I had one of those panic attacks. So that really sort of began that drug-seeking behavior and that sort of like looking to drugs to solve mental health issues. And this was from eight to roughly when? The first pill you take at eight, and what is the range in which on play dates you find yourself in the bathroom looking for the label of the drowsy, bubble-headed man? Well, I mean, definitely from age, I mean, from age eight until I stopped using drugs. But, you know, at 13, you know, 10 days after my 13th birthday, that path of addiction took another turn and it became about more than pills. But even, even after that, I always had that behavior, even into adulthood of looking in people's medicine cabinets and taking a couple pills to save for later. That was something that I, you know, I repeated for, for many, many years, for 15 years. I want to go on to that next marker in time of being a 13-year-old girl. But this visual I have of a young girl in pain and sort of collecting in family and friends' bathrooms and hiding. How do you experience that? Do you already have an association around the shame of the looking through the cabinets? And what is that experience to be that young and in that much pain and desperation, seeking it out in the world in that way, seeking out the escape in in that very specific way? I mean, I think Certainly there was some level of shame attached to the behavior, but I felt more shame about what led me to that behavior than the behavior itself. You know, I think that I had had some early childhood trauma that at that point I wasn't completely sure of, wasn't completely clear on. I just knew that I felt like something was fundamentally wrong with me that that I was a monster in a world of humans and i had to hide who this you know real monster was inside of me and that monster encompassed what had happened when i was a child a very young child and encompassed the panic attacks and the the sort of propensity towards self harm i didn't think that other people walked around thinking that way and i learned at a really early age that if i presented the way that people wanted me to on the outside I could hide what was going on on the inside. And then later on, I could get away with a lot if I presented myself the way that people wanted to see me. 
And I think that's what I felt the shame about, the shame about sort of this person who was there that they couldn't see. And there, you know, I think this is at the crux for so many people when they feel shame about something. There's this sort of formula that if anyone knew X, they wouldn't love me. And that's sort of that primal fear that we all have when we hide things from people, whether it's we're hiding mental illness or addiction or any sort of insecurity that we have or something that we did that we feel ashamed about, or, you know, some people have that about, about where they came from, you know, so I think that that's something that all of us can relate to, to varying degrees. My response to it was probably quite extreme in that I really felt like I had to keep up this sort of double life so that no one would find out these secrets. And you write about it so beautifully, and you spoke to this, but this idea almost of this mask, that on Mm -hmm. the outside, you're so shiny and vibrant and, you know, what the world considers accomplished and productive and doing the right things and horseback riding and cheerleading, and that that really was a tool for you, a smoke and mirror, so people couldn't actually see who you were truly on the inside, your level of pain, you know, which led you to reach out for things to quiet those voices and that pain in your body and your head. So it is fascinating to think of you sort of externally and internally at Mm -hmm. this coexisting at the same time. But I know at 13, it moves beyond Mm -hmm. pills. And that's such a fragile age for any girl. Where are you at 13 in your life? And when are new drugs and influences introduced into your world? So at 13, you know, I was in early adolescence, which sort of accelerated all of those feelings I'd already been having. You know, I think adolescence is so challenging and I think it's even more so for young women. You know, I think it's such a scary age because I think that, you know, for such a long time, we sexualize young women, right? And place value upon what they can offer in terms of their body and and sexually. But then there's also all this shame associated with it. We're also shaming them simultaneously for that sexuality. I had been sexually abused as a kid and it was something that I, I had this like vague idea of that I kept kind of squashing to the back of back of my mind. And I started to realize at that age that there was capital in sexuality. There, there was capital in my, the way I interacted with men. So I think that I had the sort of seeds there of starting to see how that was another drug, right? The sort of relationships and sex. And I started becoming much more aware of boys and, and sort of that dynamic that was there. So that was at play. My mom and I had a very strained relationship at that time. So I was just generally unhappy. All of the stuff that had already been there since age eight had accelerated. And I went out on a date with a guy who I'd met maybe six months before that on a spring ski trip. We had been friends, hung out a couple times in like a group setting, and he asked me out. I had lied to him. I told him I was 15 and I had just turned 13. (laughs) So 10 days after my 13th birthday, I had made up an excuse to my mom that I was spending the night at a friend's house after horseback riding. And instead, I had him pick me up from the stables. I went to his house. His parents weren't home. I was nervous. This was my first time really being alone with a guy in that setting. And as you know, the night progressed and he kissed me and I, I got very nervous and I asked him if he had any Vicodin or Valium. At that point, I knew what those drugs were. He said he didn't, but he then proceeded to ask me if I'd ever tried heroin. He had an older brother who was in college and he had been using heroin off and on, I guess, through his brother I said I hadn't, and then he asked me if I wanted to try it. I immediately said yes. There wasn't even a hesitation on my part. And in telling the story over the years, I feel like there's often, it's sort of like an unsatisfactory answer for people that it was such a flippant decision. I think he probably could have asked me if I had wanted anything, and I would have said yes, because 
again, it was sort of that heat and desperation that I felt in my body, like this need to just get out of my body. I would have taken anything that superseded sort of any thought of consequence or what that really meant. So 10 day that night, 10 days after my 13th birthday, I lost my virginity and shot heroin for the first time. What was your first experience? What happens in your mind and your body the first time you take heroin? It was as if I had taken what sort of the pain pills had done for me and multiplied it by a hundred. It was, there was the immediate sort of euphoric rush that felt good, but also scary because it was, it really overwhelmed my body. It was such a complete disconnect, like I hadn't ever felt before, where I felt like I could almost see myself like from above my body and just that I was that disconnected, that there was that much of a buffer between me and the world. So the world and my brain would sort of wash away because of that drug. I also got really physically sick, (laughs) threw up, but I much as I had with that first Darvaset, it felt like an answer that I was looking for. It felt like, oh, this is a solution. This is something that will, you know, stop me from wanting to kill myself, which sounds so counterintuitive. But in a lot of ways, that's sort of what heroin did for me because it it disconnected me enough that I didn't feel propelled to jump out that window. So 10 days after your turn 13, mm-hmm. in the same night, you lose your virginity and try heroin for mm-hmm. the first time. How often do you begin using after that first time? You know, it was not an everyday thing at all at that point. It was me using on weekends. You know, it became pretty regular on the weekends, but it would generally be like once a week. It was very easy for me to like make up excuses that I was spending the night at so-and-so's house and I would really go to his house. His parents were not around a lot. I only met them a few times and they barely acknowledged me. So I had, you know, access because of him and I didn't bring it home for a long time. It was probably over a year of sort of this casual weekend use during the summer, maybe I used a little more, but I didn't get strung out right away. You know, I think for a lot of people with opiates, it takes some time before you get a physical dependency, especially if you're sort of using it in that way. So I didn't have that physical dependency immediately. Yeah, that's what I was curious about because yeah, my gut would be that it was so addictive that it would Mm -hmm. be hard to limit it. You know what I mean? To have Mm -hmm. it sort of only be this casual thing. Right. I mean, I think definitely when I look at the course of like the 15 years of addiction, there were large parts of time where I really exerted a lot of control over the way I did drugs because that's part of what allowed me to keep it hidden for so long. And I think, you know, I may not have consciously been thinking that, but I, I definitely understood that on some sort of innate level that I have to have control over this. And, and obviously in the end, that didn't work anymore, but it did for quite some time. Well, you also had to control yourself because of this duality, these two mm-hmm. identities, right? Mm-hmm. If you were just you know, on heroin all the time, that other Aaron doesn't exist. And it sounds right. like that other Aaron was the mask and shield that protected you from the thing you were most ashamed of and people seeing that and exposing that piece of yourself. Now that said, I did, you know, I still had my pill habit. So like here and there I'd take pills, but as far as the heroin went, you know, it was really only on the weekends. When I was 14 and my mom was going through a breakup and she wasn't doing very well emotionally and my grandmother died, at that time, that was the first time that I brought heroin home over like a winter break. And I did have like my first sort of feelings of withdrawal that was sort of mild. I didn't really recognize that because I still wasn't in as deep as I would become later on. I'm so intrigued by how you did it, both physically, mentally, to have this incredible secret Mm -hmm. about your drug use, incredible shame about 
your mental health and emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And then externally to be performing on the outside world, you know, as if you should be on the cover of, you know, I don't know what, Southern Living Parenting Magazine. Look at this (laughs) beautifully accomplished child. What did that take and how did you do it? I mean, it was, it was exhausting. I think of that now and I just, I think of the years that I spent pretending to be okay, pretending to have it together. You know, I was a good actress. I was really devoted to those roles <laughs> because it felt like life, life and death to me. It felt like the only way that I would have, would ever have a hope of people liking me or loving me is if I played the roles that they wanted me to play. And you know, that meant something different to my parents, to my friends, to my boyfriends. Was there anyone who knew? Obviously your boyfriend. My boyfriend. I mean, those first, the first 10 years, let's, well, like the first, that, that first, you know, couple of years when I was really young, it was really just my boyfriend. His cousin, whom I was very close to, also knew he passed away that same year when I was 14. But your friends, your your friend's house, your parents' friends are checking in with you. There's no sort of experiencing you of, wow, Erin needs a lot of help. She has a drug problem. No. And when I brought drugs home, I wasn't doing it during the day. I would wait until I went to bed, to my bedroom for, you know, for bed, and I would do it then. I was really, really controlled about it at that point. Because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't so far down the rabbit hole yet. I wasn't so physically addicted. So I could wait all day and do it at night. At the height of your usage, Mm -hmm. as it escalates, you're now bringing it home and using it home. At the height of your addiction, what what does that look like? How often are you using? Where are you using? There did come a point where I was using more, using it on a daily basis, but I wasn't using several times a day. I, w- I never paid for drugs at all during that entire time period. It was all from that one boyfriend. When we broke up, finally, shortly after his cousin, who was my best friend, died, and my boyfriend was sort of you know, losing it, I broke things off with him. And I didn't use heroin again for quite a few years. However, I still used a lot of other drugs in that period of time. You know, I had, I used like crystal meth. I used all sorts of hallucinogens and always a lot of pills. I always used a lot of pills. So even when I had this absence from heroin from age 15 until I was about 20, I used drugs that entire time. I just didn't use heroin. When I started using again at 20, 21 years old, that was when things really escalated for me. I began using, I was using several hundred dollars a day worth of heroin. And, um, you know, from that point forward, you know, I, I, I had a couple trips to rehab. I had continuous relapses. I had a relapse where I started smoking crack. And at that point, I mean, I don't even know. I was... I was using several hundred dollars a day worth of heroin and crack, you know, selling everything in my apartment, stealing money and and objects from my parents. And it it became really bad really fast. Another thing you said is the only bottom you can't recover from is death. Mm-hmm. Did you think you were going to die? I did at different times. I mean, you know, I spent so much of my life wanting to die <laughs> that I didn't really care. I did have a point where I stopped using needles after an overdose because I I didn't want to do that to somebody else. I didn't want somebody to find me, but I still thought that I would meet my end with, with some form of suicide. I just didn't think that I would be able to stay here. And that, obviously, that is the point where it's massively escalated, as you've mm-hmm. just explained. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be in and out of rehab, to be relapsing? I've been asked so many times over the years, like, how many times did you relapse? I have no idea. I relapsed so many times that there's no way for me to even count it. I look at that period of time as like, to me, that's like hell on earth. To to constantly be relapsing is a horrible, horrible existence. 
it's been 17 years since I've used drugs, more than 17 years. And a lot of times people will ask like, oh, do you still get cravings? Like, do you ever think that, you know, you would be in danger of using again? And my biggest reason that I say no is that, you know, and this sounds overly dramatic, but I would rather put a gun to my head than ever go through withdrawal and relapsing constantly like that again. And I'm 100% sure that if I started using again, that's what would happen. What happens when you're withdrawing? Well, there's the physical aspect. You know, heroin slows all of your systems down. Now, when you go through withdrawal, everything suddenly kicked up. You have your muscles are going through muscle spasms. A lot of people have gastrointestinal issues, whether that's vomiting, diarrhea. Your nose is running. It feels like you have the flu. You're achy all over. You have the chills. It feels very much like a flu. But imagine the worst flu. And then there's the psychological aspect where you know that if you use, you'll feel instantly better. And the psychological aspect of A, knowing that you did this to yourself and B, knowing that there is something that will stop the worst discomfort imaginable, it becomes really, really difficult to not reach for the drug again. The first time I went to rehab, I believe it was about 17 days that I didn't really sleep. You know, I would go to bed, lie down, shut my eyes, but I wasn't sleeping. I just had constant thoughts running through my head and this sort of like amped up anxious feeling. And and that's common for a lot of people going through opiate withdrawals that they have a lot of trouble sleeping. I think that the acute part of, of withdrawal is 72 hours. That's the most acute physical part of detoxing from an opiate. But you continue to have withdrawal symptoms probably for at least a couple of weeks physical symptoms. And then it takes a long time for your brain chemistry to get back to any sort of homeostasis. And that's the really challenging part. Because especially for somebody like me who already had, you know, existing mental health issues and a lot of PTSD, it felt unbearable to sit through the psychological, emotional part of it once the physical part was over. And you wrote about, which I thought was really poignant, about in some recovery communities, the shame around relapse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, which kind of pissed me off. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, here you are on this unfathomable, painful ride, doing your very best, and you stumble, and the reaction is, we're ashamed, I'm ashamed, which doesn't lead, you know what I mean? That That's not going to lead to the change or the growth, but that you would do all that. So you would go and detox and that physical pain and emotional pain and 17 nights and try and get back on track and you relapse, which is really a stumble and then mm-hmm. have people publicly shaming you. So I'd never heard anyone talk about that way. And I, and mm-hmm. I want you to, to share that because I think personally, I learn something from you saying that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I don't even think it's a conscious thing all the time, right? I think that in a lot of recovery settings and and whether they're 12-step meetings or, or other recovery communities, number one, when somebody relapses, it can feel like it puts your own recovery in jeopardy. And people have a tendency to subconsciously kind of want to distance themselves. So there's that. Number two, with any kind of program where you're counting the number of days that you have in sobriety, you're starting over at day one again. And a lot of people from my own, from my own experience and, and from people I know who have relapsed, that idea of going all the way back to day one can give people this idea that like, well, screw it. I've already messed up. So I'm just going just gonna to go all out. And that's how a lot of people die. You know, I think that for friends and family members of people in recovery, of course, it's frustrating when there's yet another relapse. I I really get that. 
it can be difficult to sort of differentiate the human from the condition that they're struggling with. And I think that that's the challenge when we have people with addiction disorders in our life is separating the person from the addiction. And when we're able to do that, it allows us to be a lot less judgmental and allow them the sort of grace of relapsing and coming back again. I needed somebody to tell me that, not that, you know, not that you're co-signing or validating like, oh, it's fine that you relapsed, but to say that you haven't erased all the work you've put in because you stumbled. Aaron, had I met you at that time in your life in, you know, a coffee shop and said, you know, Aaron, 17 years from now, you you're gonna have two healthy kids, you're gonna be a mom, you will be sober and drug free, an author. Could you have imagined that? I mean, what did you think your future was? Or did you even think about your future or, or the possibility of, of having health and happiness to some extent? I did not think that this was all possible for me. I didn't think that I didn't think that I'd ever really be able to stop using. I thought that I would probably be stuck in that never-ending cycle of relapsing until I decided to kill myself because I just couldn't stop. I want to jump to the moment mm-hmm. that changed that for you during your pregnancy. Mhm. And why? Can you share that story with us? Sure. So when I was 28, I got pregnant. I was on drugs at the time. I was with somebody who was not a drug addict. We had actually just broken up because he found out I was using. I found out I was pregnant and I had had an abortion two years before that, that while I'm completely pro-choice and I know it was the right decision, was devastating for me in ways that I never could have predicted. And I knew that I couldn't go through that again. I wouldn't survive that again. Against all better judgment (laughs) and against the advice of everyone around me, I decided to have the baby. His father and I ended up getting married which, you know, we probably shouldn't have. (laughs) Our marriage didn't last, spoiler. But we made the decision to get married. I decided to have this baby, but I was on drugs. I didn't know how to stop. And we found a doctor who was willing to detox me using buprenorphine, which at the time they had just sort of started using that, you know, in the last couple of years before that. This is 2003. At the time, what the protocol was for pregnant women is that they would put you on methadone maintenance. And I had never been on methadone. I didn't want to go on methadone. And I didn't want the baby to be born addicted to anything. So I found a doctor who detoxed me over the course of seven days using buprenorphine, which helps with the severity of withdrawal symptoms. Because one of the dangers, one of the reasons that they keep pregnant women on a methadone maintenance program is that um, acute withdrawal can trigger a miscarriage. So I went through that detox and I never used drugs again. I was really newly sober for the first time in over 15 years and felt not that stable, (laughs) felt ambivalent about the pregnancy, and I just wasn't sure about what the future would hold not very certain in my abilities to be a mother either. And I don't think other people were very certain of that (laughs) as well. So when I gave birth to Atticus, you know, they cleaned him up and, and the nurse handed him to me. And I had just one of those sort of cliche sounding lightning bolt moments. She put him in my arms. I looked at him and the first thought I had was, oh, it's you. Like I knew this soul. I knew this person. There was like an immediate familiarity there. And then the next thought I had was, I love you more than I hate myself. And that was a very profound moment for me because I had lived with so much self-hatred for so long. I wasn't very good at loving other people either. But I knew when I saw him, 
that I wasn't, I wasn't going to leave the legacy of who I had been with this kid. So I made a commitment that I was going to do what I needed to do to stay sober. And I did. And that, you know, it's not that simple, obviously, because there was a lot of work to come, but I never used drugs again. I always like to say and follow up to that moment that I had long-term care after that. I had financial support. I had familial support. I had the support of friends. I had support structures in place and the financial means to access care. When I think of how hard it was for me to get recovery and to maintain sobriety, even with all the privileges and access that I had, you look at somebody who doesn't have all of that access, that doesn't have all of that privilege, it becomes exponentially harder, which is why I, you know, in my work advocating in the recovery community and with public health officials, I am continually advocating for access to long-term aftercare for people because that's really the key. It's what I've seen for myself and what I've seen in others. It's about the long-term aftercare. I love your story of Atticus saving you. I equally love and have deep respect and all the research I did, Aaron, that you so head on address your privilege and your access and the fact that it is a privilege because I think it's a service to everyone who listens and everyone who hears you speak of the disparity and also yeah. not that to, to create an expectation that it is an easy road when you don't have help and resources. Mm-hmm. So thank you for being so self-aware. <laughs> so the name of the book is Strung Out, One Last Hit, and the Other Lies That Almost Killed Me. I would imagine that the time it takes to write a book that is that deeply personal and to go back Because if you're going to write from an authentic place and a truthful voice, and you really have to bring it all to life and think about the details and the sounds and the emotion, and you cover so much. I mean, the death of your best friend, the loss of your grandmother, the grief of your parents, this time with your mom and the boyfriend who's only referred to as asshole. I don't know his name. (laughs) Um, And you know, being on heroin and having this guy hovering over you as losing your virginity and throwing up in bathrooms. I mean, you really had to relive all of those moments. Mm -hmm. I imagine there's a lot of cathartic work that happens there, but that it's also incredibly painful for you to go back and relive it and connect the dots. How was that experience for you? You know, it's funny because that comes up a lot, like if, if writing a memoir is cathartic. And I, I feel like for me, the catharsis had to happen before I wrote this book, <laughs> if that makes sense. I had to go through sort of process of delving back into those moments before I actually wrote this book. And I did that through writing. I did that through personal essays and sort of figuring out what I wanted this book to be. That was really, really helpful for me. So it's good advice. Yes. Do the work and go to therapy before you write a memoir with all of your deepest, darkest secrets, if anyone's planning on it. (laughs) I think so. So now the book is out and it's published. Mm -hmm. And I know your son, it's been 17 years since you've been clean and sober. So Mm -hmm. I'm assuming Atticus is 17. Yes. But at 12, he asked you a question. Mm -hmm. What was the question? And what was your answer? So when he was 12, and this is sort of how I open the book and frame the book. When he was 12, he was watching the news and there there was a big case here where there was a dermatologist and she was found dead in a doorway of an apartment building from a drug overdose. But she was married with children and had this whole other life with her family in the suburbs He was watching it. I was kind of half listening to it, reading something across the room. And he looked up and said, mom, did you ever do drugs? And I, (laughs) I knew that I was going to 
talk to him about it at some point, but I just wasn't prepared in that moment. And I sort of deflected and I said, well, you know, alcohol is a drug (laughs) and just sort of brushed it off. But I realized that I needed to find a way to talk to him about it because he, you know, in, you know, a handful of months from then, he was going to be turning 13 and I was 13 when I started using heroin. So shortly before his 13th birthday, I told him that I wanted to talk to him and I told him my story in an age-appropriate way where, you know, I explained that I had struggled with how I felt about myself and feeling like I was going to jump out of my skin and, and that things had happened to me when I was a kid that I didn't tell my parents about. And I felt really ashamed of that and that I struggled with feeling like I wanted to hurt myself. And I was constantly looking for some way to not feel that way. And I told him that I started using heroin and that I struggled with it for 15 years until I got pregnant with him. You know, he, I don't know what I expected his reaction to be, but he looked at me and he just gave me a big hug and said, I'm so sorry you went through that. I think it's so important that from an early age, we talk to our kids, not that we're going to talk to them at three about drugs, but that from an early age, we talk to them about feelings and maybe things that we struggled with when we were their age, whether it was anxiety or a little depression or you know, some fear, you know, in social settings, whatever it is, I think that when we open up those conversations and frame it around our own experience without asking them to tell us what's going on with them, we leave the door open to know that they could speak to us about these things, that if those feelings come up for them, they're not alone in that. That's wonderful advice. Thank you for that. What do you think is the most significant misunderstanding? What do people sort of categorically misunderstand when they think about addiction or addicts? I think the the biggest misconception is that it's a moral issue, that it's a choice that people who don't have the same morals as they do make, right? There's this idea that I would never do that. You know, even when I went to rehab the first time, there were, you know, so many people were there for different addictions, and I was the only heroin addict. And everyone was like, oh, I would never do heroin. Like that was one line they would never cross. And I think, you know, addiction is not a moral issue, it's a public health issue. And we need to look at it through a health lens, not a moral lens. No child dreams of becoming a drug addict one day. You know, as I think I mentioned earlier, I think so often it's hard for us to remember the human being underneath the addiction. And I think that when we can do that, when we put the human first and the addiction they're struggling with second, we're able to be a lot more empathetic and to see them as a human being. So much of what we see, especially around the opioid crisis, you know, the news has like, you know, oh, people nodding out, passed out in cars or on the sidewalk in New York. You know, we often see people who are passed out on the street. I've seen people shooting up on the street. You know, that is a human being struggling with a human condition. And it is upsetting and it makes us feel all sorts of things but it is not because that person is an immoral person or that that person is not a good person or that that could never be us because addiction doesn't look like any one thing you know part of the reason that i hid my addiction for as long as i did until i got caught and went to rehab that first time at 23 i'd hid it for 10 years successfully from nearly everyone in my life. And the only reason that I was able to do that is because I didn't look or act like what people thought drug addicts looked or acted like. And I think it's so important to constantly remind people that, it, that addiction just doesn't look like any one thing. I can't tell you how many times I've had professionals reach out to me um, through my website or email or referred from a friend who are in high-powered 
physicians or our doctors or lawyers who are struggling with an addiction and nobody knows. I get this sort of email message on social media all the time. There are so many people out there who are struggling with addiction and have it hidden. And I think that we need to collectively try to cultivate a, an approach to it that makes people feel like they can reach out for help. Because that's, that stigma around addiction is what prevents people from asking for help. It's what prevented me from asking for help. And then, you know, in turn, that stigma is what's killing people. Well said. Today, 17 years later, what would you say are the things that you turn to, your tools Mm -hmm. to keep yourself healthy? Because I imagine... (laughs) 17 years ago, there wasn't a magic wand and life is perfect and free right. of pain and hardship <laughs> and depression. So what do you turn to now? I mean, what are the things that, that keep you whole and as healthy as you can be? The number one thing is that I let people know when I'm not doing okay. You know, a perfect example is like early on in the pandemic, I started having panic attacks again and having that old feeling of like, oh, I want to jump out of my skin. And I hadn't felt that way in a long time. Like it's not my job to judge whatever it is I'm feeling. It's just a feeling. I'm feeling it. Okay. I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling panicky or I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling like I can't do anything right or I'm feeling paralysis, whatever it is. I think the first sort of step to relieving yourself of it is acknowledging it. I have a really good support system in place in terms of mental health care professionals. That includes medication for me. This is going to sound very simple, but I do little things that are that that trigger the reward center in our brain, like making very simple to-do lists that include things like make the bed, shower, you know, use a face mask, drink, you know, seven glasses of water, whatever it is. If I put it, these little things on a list and check them off, it just it changes something in my brain. I know to get outside and get some fresh air. There are lots of those sorts of little things that I can do. And I always, when talking to anyone that's like struggling, like our brain chemistry is out of our control and it's not our fault. Like whatever anyone's mental health situation is, that's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to do what you can when you're capable of doing it to help yourself. Erin, what do you hope people take away when you share your story with them? You know, obviously for anyone who's struggled with addiction, I want them to feel less alone. And more importantly, for people who might have loved ones or friends who struggle with addiction or for people who don't understand addiction, I hope that they walk away with a better understanding of addiction as a human condition rather than a moral issue, that it gives people more empathy and gives people an openness to talk about it. Because truly our greatest defense in all of this is a willingness to talk openly about it. Things can feel extremely scary when we don't talk about them. When we, you know, families are afraid to talk about addiction, even when they have addiction in their family. That doesn't help. It adds to the stigma It creates a situation where people are less likely to reach out for help. I really hope that the book opens up conversations for people in families and in friend groups where they can talk about addiction much more openly. I think it'll do all of that and more. And thank you for making the time. I really have learned a lot from you in preparing for this interview and this conversation today. And I know that everybody listening will share that experience with me. So thank you, Erin. Thank you so much, Kimmy. So we end with something fun called rapid fire. Okay. (laughs) You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Favorite song? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's really, really hard. (laughs) Okay. I had two songs that jumped into my head. Um, PJ Harvey's Rid of Me. And I guess we'll just go with that because that's the first one that popped into my head. 
All right. I'm going to check it out. Favorite place? New York City. The person I admire most? My mom. What I wish I knew when I was 20? That I could let people see who I was and they would still love me. What I hope to know at 80? That I've lived a life filled with love. And I hear little voices in the background, so this is the perfect timing. (laughs) These are COVID interviews, people. There are children involved. Um, So my last question from our conversation and rapid fire is my hope for my children. My hope for my children is that they know that no matter what they're feeling or what they've done, that they can come to me with it and that I will always love them. I want them to never feel that they won't be loved if they reveal something. Amen, sister. (laughs) Is there anywhere, we'll link to the book, but Mm -hmm. social media, are you on Instagram? Is there a website? Where can our listeners find you and follow what you are up to in the world? Sure. So I have a website, which is just erincar.com, E-R-I-N-K-H-A-R.com. My weekly advice column, Ask Aaron, is on my website. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Aaron Carr. Awesome, Aaron. Have a wonderful New York afternoon. And thank you for making the time today. Thank you so much. As you heard in the interview, Aaron grew up in LA, which sadly was the backdrop of her addiction. So it's fitting and beautiful that today's episode supports the LA Community Health Project. Their mission is to improve the health and well-being of people affected by drug use and addiction in LA, empower people to protect and care for themselves, and educate each other to reduce harm and addiction in our city. You can learn more about their work at chpla.org. I hope you learned something new from Aaron today. And then if you know anybody who is suffering from addiction or helping someone they love, that you'll share today's episode. As always, thank you for listening. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.